Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Yeah, do you believe that I really thought that was great? I was like ready to pass out right there. Did you notice he had to like pull me up? I was like, my knees were weak. So any questions about skydiving? What? When are we all going? Woo! How many of you would go if we did like a group skydiving thing? Well, let me ask you, how many of you have skydived before? You've done that. Let me tell you something that would really excite you. A month after that skydive at that very same place, one of the older instructors, when he jumped out of the plane with somebody tethered to him, had a heart attack. The guy that was tethered to him, <laughs> picture yourself being that guy. <laughs> He, uh, he had enough sort of wherewithal to pull the chute, and they landed, and the instructor was dead. Yes, instructor was dead. So how many of you want to skydive? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I've sort of been thinking about it. You know, why do we do things like that? And uh, I think that some of the reason, anyway, is that we like to think of ourselves as sort of great, as big, as bold, those kinds of people. And so we do things like skydiving or, or uh, how many of you have ever bungee jumped? All right, we've got some bungee jumpers. How many of you have like mountain climbed? I mean like serious, not like walking, hiking, mountain climbing. All right, we've got some, all right. Uh, how many of you have like ever argued with your mother-in-law? All right, so you know, we like to think of ourselves as sort of these, these great, big, bold, kind of people. And I think it's one of the reasons that we love to go to action movies and live vicariously through stars that do that. Or, you know, many of you may play Xbox and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's really thrilling, but it's totally safe. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we sort of like to see ourselves as that. But I have some kind of bad news. And that is that we probably aren't that great, big, and bold. And uh, it's not entirely our fault. Uh, We live in a society, in a nation, that is one of the safest nations, in fact, the safest nation that has ever been. And many of us live in the safest places, you know, in in the safest nation. And, uh, And so everything that's around us is sort of pushing us toward being safe. You know, we have safety belts and safety helmets, and we have... You know, our our bank accounts are insured, and we have lawyers to help us out with things. You know, we have all kinds of things and technology that makes things more comfortable for us. We live sort of in this tide that is sort of pushing us in the direction of being safe and comfortable, you know, of enjoying the life that we have. And it actually kind of works against something that is, is down deep in us where we would like to really think that we're great that we're big and that we're bold. In fact, I was listening to a guy speak, Andy Stanley, who's one of my favorite teachers. Uh, he's a pastor. And he was just, it was pretty convicting. And he just said, you know, we just aren't as bold as we would like to think we are. And the fact of the matter is, even though we live in this really safe time to be alive, 
uh, many of us are just still sort of scared. I mean, many of us are very cautious and we move very slowly. And really the slightest discomfort or the slightest insecurity or the slightest risk and we pull back immediately because we just think, that's not, that's not the time I live in. I don't need to put up with that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. God has pretty explicitly told us that unless we are willing to be great, big, and bold, we will not ever step into the life that he wants us to have, the abundant life that Jesus talks about. Uh, the New Testament is so filled with examples of that, and, and we are pushed and challenged so much in these areas that it really becomes apparent that unless we're willing to go there, unless we're willing to sort of rip ourselves out of our comfortable existence, that we're not going to experience everything that God has. And then furthermore, because we're in the series on the church, we started it last week, is it's very clear that the church can never be what God designs it to be, can never really fulfill its mission unless we are great, big, and bold. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about that. And let me just say this too. I'm not really much of an inspiring speaker, but that sort of works to our advantage because this is not an issue of giving you a pep talk. It's not an issue of pumping you up for the next 30 minutes so that you go out of here and for the first couple of days of the week, you're just on mission because that's not ever how God does it. It is not through some kind of human ingenuity or cleverness or my persuasiveness. That's not the way you're going to become great, big, and bold. Rather, there's a lesson that we can learn today, actually, that is very applicable, that has nothing to do with motivation, but understanding how God wants us to move in this. So that's what we're going to do. We're in this series, and it's called Unleashed. And what we thought we would do is at the beginning of our church, as we talk about being the Huntington Beach Church and having an impact in Fountain Valley and Seal Beach and Garden Grove and Westminster and the areas around here, we just thought, well, let's go back and look at the church the way the very first church started, because there was a lot of great lessons to learn. And let's, let's just apply some of these to us. And so last week, we talked about the fact that the church was never meant to be a building or a service or a hierarchy. That was never what Jesus had in mind. It was certainly not what the first church was all about. Rather, the first church, do you remember what church literally means, what the word church means? It means gathering. It means gathering. It means a group of people. It's, the church is not the seat you're sitting in, and it's not the building we're in, and it's not the fact that we're here you know, around 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It's that we're together. We are the church. This is the church. And if we all walked outside, the church would be outside. We are the church. And the church was built on an event which was the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That was the event. And it was built on sort of the cause that followers of Jesus, that the gathering had, which was to tell the world about Jesus through our lives, through our words. And finally, that it would become a movement, that it would become actually something so much bigger than an institution, that it would become a movement. And that's really what we're looking to do here, is to become a movement. But one of the things that has to happen for us to be a movement is for us to get a handle on becoming great, big, and bold, because that is an essential characteristic of the movement. So that's what we're going to do. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3. Did you bring your Bibles today? These are really good things to bring, because we're not going to put everything up on the screen that we're looking at. 
Um, I really want to encourage you to bring these because you can mark in them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and also, let me just say this. Um, if you are in the market to buy a Bible, um, we are going to start using a version called the NIV, New International Version. It's been around for a long time, but it's just been sort of redone. And uh, it's just coming out this spring. And we're going to start using it. So if you're in the market for a Bible, hold off until the new one comes out. And uh, that's the one that we'll always use on the screens up here and so forth. Okay, so bring your Bibles. These are great things to bring. And turn to Acts chapter 3 if you have it right now. We will bring some of the scripture up on the screen. And let me just fill you in on this story. This is a story that takes place after the church has started. If you were here last week, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached this message. And it was so powerful. And the Holy Spirit worked in such an amazing way that 3,000 people became Christians that day. 3,000 people believed and were baptized, which must have been just an amazing thing to watch. And so the church is launched, and sometime after that, probably a few days after that, it says that Peter and John are walking into the temple, which is still where the worship area is in Jerusalem, walking into the temple, and there is a crippled guy that is sort of next to the, the entrance. And they look at this guy, and this guy's like over 40 years old. He's been crippled his whole life. And they have a little interaction back and forth. The crippled guy thinks that maybe they're going to give him some money. And Peter uh, probably dashes his hopes when he says, I have no money to give you. And he probably looked right past Peter, maybe looked at John or somebody else coming in because there was nothing that Peter could give him. But then Peter gazed into his eyes and he said, but I do have something to give you. And he said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he grabbed him by the hand and the guy walked for the first time in his life. And it was spectacular. It was amazing. It created such a stir that everything in the temple basically stopped because everybody knew this guy. And they were just dumbfounded to see him walking around. And so the questions started pouring out. What's going on? How is this guy walking? And it became very clear that it was Peter and John. And it was these guys that were talking about this man, Jesus. It was done in the name of Jesus. And the whole temple just stops operating, and everybody's looking at Peter. And I told you last week, I think Peter is kind of a frustrated preacher, so every time he has a chance to preach, he does. And he starts preaching. And he starts telling them, you know, you're all amazed, but let me tell you, this is done in the power of Jesus. And he sort of gives the spiel on Jesus, and he explains that salvation comes from Jesus. Well, the authorities that were in charge of the temple are very nervous about this. And in fact, they're so nervous that they arrest Peter and John. They throw them in jail because it's late in the day. And they leave them there. And then they bring them back in front of, called the Sanhedrin, the next day. And in fact, the people that come, the, the people that are looking at Peter and John the next day are the exact people who had tried, convicted, and handed Jesus over to be killed. I mean, the very same people. So these are people that could really cause a lot of damage. And when they talk to Peter, instead of shrinking back, Peter, who most of us would probably, if you know anything about Peter, would say Peter was great, big, and bold. Peter looked them in the eye and he said, well, let me just tell you why we're doing this. He said, first, our authority comes from Jesus, not from you, which they didn't like. And he said... Jesus, remember, he's the guy you killed two months ago, which they did not like that. 
And he said, but in that name of Jesus, this guy that's standing right next to me that's been crippled for 40 years is standing here. And they did not like that. And then the last thing he said, and salvation comes through no other name. It's through Jesus. It's not through your temple, not through your sacrifices, not through the religion that you practiced for thousands of years. Salvation comes through Jesus. And they did not like that. And then here's the evaluation that they gave. And if you look in Acts uh, 4.13, it says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. All right, so let's just look at what they observed. They looked at Peter and John. Do you, do you remember what Peter and John's professions, uh, profession was before they met Jesus? Fishermen. They were untrained. They had not been trained in rabbinic training. They're standing before sort of like, you know, schooled theologians. And they looked at him. Uh, these schooled theologians looked probably down with contempt on these fishermen. But they could not, they could not ignore the fact that these men were incredibly powerful incredibly persuasive and even though they were untrained and ordinary ordinary like you and me just ordinary people who Jesus had gotten a hold of there was nothing they could do they could not stand up to these men they were astonished by these guys and then they make the final conclusion because they'd been with Jesus they'd been with Jesus and you know what a lot of the people that were in that room had seen Jesus in action. Remember, Jesus had only died two months before. He had been crucified probably about 100 yards from where they were standing right at this point. I mean, this was recent history. They remembered all this. They remembered how Jesus operated. And now as they're looking at Peter and John, they're saying, they are so much like him. They are so much like him. You know, they are great. They are big. They are bold people now some of you may say and I would say this well Peter was just kind of born that way I mean he was just kind of a wild man he was a bold kind of guy and again if you kind of know Peter's story in the gospels he does things he's bold all the time and you might think well that's great for people that are naturally bold I'm not naturally bold I'm not naturally a big personality. I, I'm not the kind of person that just runs into a situation and just grabs command of it well, I want to point something out about Peter's boldness, okay? Just if you're thinking that he's in a different category than you, let's just look at Peter for a second. Flipping your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 26, okay? So just flip back about four books. Matthew 26, because in Matthew 26, it is true that Peter's kind of a bold guy, but uh, let's see how well he did. Let's see how well he did in Matthew 26. Just chronologically, we're going back two months. This is the night before Jesus is killed. And uh, I, I just want to kind of tell you the story so you can look through it on, on your own. Okay, so here's the first thing that happens. It is the Last Supper. It's about 12 hours before Jesus is going to actually be crucified. And Jesus is with his disciples. And do you remember that he predicts to them? He says, listen, uh, we're just hours away from the fact that I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be murdered. And then Jesus says, and all of you are going to bail on me. All you guys that are around this table right now that I've been with for the last three years, all of you are going to bail. 
And do you remember what Peter says? He says, they all might, but not, not me. Not me. Jesus, you can count on me. Even if they all turn tail, even if they're all yellow, I will be here. I will stick with you. So now fast forward. They leave that place. They go up to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, after Jesus prays, remember what happens? A whole bunch of soldiers come and he is arrested. Then it describes that at one point, one of the disciples, one of the disciples grabs a sword and he tries to chop a guy in half. He tries to, and he misses and he just hits the guy's ear and the ear gets chopped off. Who was that? Peter. That was Peter. That was Peter being bold. Peter standing up for Jesus. Peter saying, hey, I told you you could count on me. If we go down, Jesus, we go down together. But do you remember what Jesus' response is to Peter at that point? He says, put your sword away. He said, those who use the sword, those who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword. Peter wasn't being bold, not the way Jesus wanted. Peter was being rash. And you know, there's a difference between being rash and being bold. Sometimes they look the same because they can be overpowering and they sort of are in your face and they make people feel uncomfortable. But here's the big difference. Being bold for God always has a purpose, always has a God-sized purpose. Being rash doesn't have a purpose at all. Being rash is just being out there on your own. It's making people feel uncomfortable or pushing people in a way that doesn't really help anything out. Peter was rash in the situation. He was not bold. And then we fast forward and Jesus, again, is arrested. He's put on trial. He goes through a series of trials. Um, actually, Peter is sort of around him. Peter is the one disciple that kind of sticks with him. So Peter's in the courtyard when Jesus is just up, just in the building right next door. In fact, at one point, Jesus looks at Peter. So they're close to each other. And remember what happens to Peter? People ask him, do you know him? And what does he say? No. Second time, do you know this guy? You have an accent just like him. What does he say? No, don't know him. Finally, as he's feeling the pressure, somebody comes up and he says, I'm sure I saw you with this Jesus guy. And it says that Peter curses. He cusses the guy out. And then he says, I don't know that man. And then it says he realized what had happened because the cock crows and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And I just want to point out, Peter was not bold. Peter bragged about being bold. Peter was rash at times. And when it came down to it, Peter folded. Peter totally fell apart. And so the question is, what's the difference between Peter that we see in Matthew 26 when he just collapses, basically, and the Peter now that's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the Peter just two months later, only two months have gone by, and Peter is a renewed man. He truly is a bold person at this point. And of course, the huge thing that's happened is Jesus has died and raised again. 
And now Jesus' spirit is working in Peter. And so here's, here's really an important part. You can't be bold like Jesus unless you're transformed by Jesus. You can't do it in your own strength. If you do it in your own strength, you'll say the great words and fail. You'll be rash, not bold. The time will come when it's all coming down to you standing and doing what is the right thing to do. And it takes boldness and you'll just fall apart. You cannot be bold like Jesus unless you've been transformed by him. It's his spirit that makes you bold. It's not you. It's not you mustering up the strength. It's not your personality. It's not how clever you are, how well respected you are, or the willingness that you have to take risks. It has to do with being transformed by Jesus. So how are you doing? We all together? Yeah? We, we're, we're doing all right? Okay. So we go back to the story that's taking place in Acts chapter 4. And they're impressed with how bold these two men are. But then the Sanhedrin say to them, let us make ourselves perfectly clear to you, Peter and John. You will stop talking about Jesus you will refrain from coming into the temple. You will not do this anymore because the next time we won't just throw you in jail. The next time it's going to be ugly and it's going to be bloody and you're not going to like it. We don't want you back here. We don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. Knock it off. And you know we can do something about this. So it says that Peter and John leave and they go back to their group. And now I want to talk about how they respond to that threat. Okay, because that's really the issue for us. Being bold when it costs nothing is not so hard. But when you're in a situation and you feel like, you know what, being bold may mean I could get passed over for this promotion that I've been working really hard for. And if I really stand for Jesus in this circumstance, knowing my boss, knowing how things work... I might not get this promotion. I mean, that's when the pressure's on. And even more so, I I had a friend who, to walk with Jesus meant he was going to get fired from his job because in that particular uh, place that he was working, he was asked to do so many things that were sort of shady that he knew that standing up and saying, I can't do this for you because it would not honor Jesus. And he was fired from his job. I mean, that's when you have to start saying boldness really requires something. Boldness, there's a cost with boldness. Maybe it means being excluded from a group that you're trying to be in. You know, maybe at school and this is the cool group. And as long as you keep Jesus to yourself, everything's okay. But if you're going to start blabbing about this, we don't want you around. Or you're not going to be invited to the party because who wants somebody that loves Jesus at our party? You know, that's when it happens. So let's look kind of at the secret of how the disciples remained bold. And it has to do with what happens immediately when they come back from this interaction with the Sanhedrin. And it says that Peter and John come back. And again, go over to Acts chapter 4. Go back to Acts 4. And it says this. It says in uh, Acts 4.23, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
Now, let me point out the first thing that they do. They come back. There's now been this incredible threat that's been placed not only on them, but on the rest of the disciples, on the rest of the followers of Jesus. And now there's a lot in the city. There's been this threat that's been placed on them. And the first thing that they do is they say, well, you know what we need to do is we need to pray about this. We just need to pray. And I want to point out that the very first thing that they do in their prayer is they acknowledge something about God. And I want to point this out because let me just really, really make this clear. It is not about you being great. It's not about me being great. It's about God being great. That's really what happens here. Immediately they say, okay, we are in this position. It seems like these leaders or these circumstances could make our life the pits. They could wipe us out. And the question is, are we in their hands or are we in God's hands? And the very first thing that they do is they, they just say, we're not in their hands. We're in God's hands. God is sovereign. Do you know what sovereign means? Sovereign means that he controls everything. And he does it by virtue of the fact that he's the creator. He made everything. He made the earth. He made the heavens. He made the universe. He made everything in them. He could take everything out if he wants. And immediately what they do is they say, we've got to right-size this situation. This situation seems dire. It seems very threatening to us. But here's the reality. It's nothing that a great God can't handle. This is in God's hands. We are in God's hands. Nothing will happen to us that God does not allow. They may think they have control of the situation. But the reality is they have no control at all. This is all God. And that is such an essential thing. Let me, we're, we're going to fast forward. I want to tell you one other story, okay? And um, so don't lose me here because we're still in the, this story. But I want to fast forward. Just go one chapter over to the book of, uh, to chapter 5. Because there's another story that takes place. And I want to just fill you in on the story because there is something so incredible that's said along these lines in chapter 5. By somebody who's not a follower of Jesus. This may be my favorite quote in the New Testament from somebody who's not a follower of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 5, all the disciples are out. All the disciples are in the temple. All the disciples are teaching about Jesus, talking about Jesus. And they are all arrested. And now... The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are furious. They're just so angry because they are being defied by these guys. And so they decide, we're going to kill them. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to kill them. And then it says that a guy, a rabbi named Gamil, uh, stands up and he says, wait a second. Before, before we, we torch these guys, before we, before we make 11 or 12 martyrs out of one martyr, because the one martyr thing's not working real well for us. We thought Jesus was gone, but he's more trouble than he's ever been now. Before we just multiply our problems by 11 or 12, uh, let me just talk to you. Send the guys out of the room. Send the disciples out of the room. Let me talk to you for a second. And so this rabbi, who's very wise, says, now listen, here's the deal. We've been around for a long time. There have been people that have risen up over the last generation that we've been alive to see that have created sort of these rebellions, these revolts. They've pushed against the Jews. They've pushed against the Romans. And they've risen up. And he says, there's this guy named uh, Thutis. 
And Thutis raised up about 400 people, and they created a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety and angst, and all of a sudden Rome was paying more attention to us, and that was not a good thing for us. But then Thutis died, Thutis was killed, and all the 400 just disbanded. And then he said, and then there was, the, remember Judas the Galilean? It's not the Judas that you're thinking of. It's a different guy. The Judas the Galilean. And he raised up a mob, and it created a lot of problems. And do you remember, guys, talking to the Sanhedrin, do you remember what we did? We didn't get involved because we knew that Rome would take care of it. That if this guy was a big enough pain in the butt to Rome, we were not going to have to worry about it. Rome will come in and just wipe him out. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Judas was taken care of, wiped out, all of his group just disbanded. He said, now we're standing in just exactly the same situation. Jesus raised up a group of people and he has died. And yeah, there's a little bump in the road here. But if we will just stay out of it, Rome will take care of this. We don't need to worry about it. Rome will take care of this. We would be foolish to get involved because the people will hate us because they like these guys. They're healing people. There's like all these people that are converting. We need to stay out of it. And it says that he convinces them. And here's the words he uses to convince them. I love these words. This is my favorite quote uh, from somebody that's not a believer. He says he's in Acts 5.38. In fact, is that up here? Hey, let's read this together, okay? Because this is so, so very cool. It says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if this purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. What an incredible insight. Here's what he says. He says, listen, if these are just people, if this is just sort of a rebellion that has human origin, now that Jesus is gone, it's going to dissipate. And then he says, but if this is from God, do you think you can stop it? And you know what this rabbi is saying? He's saying, this is in God's hands. This is not in our hands, boys. We better back off because we might find ourselves actually fighting against God. And we don't want to do that. And I'll just point this out. Rome tried to take out Christianity. A little bit after this, the Christians become so strong, and there's so many of them around the Roman Empire, that Rome tries to take them out. The persecutions are massive. Heavy, heavy martyrdom. And I want to ask you a question. Rome, the city of Rome, has more of these in it than any other city in the world. You know what I'm talking about? Not Christians, but crosses. More crosses than any other city in the world. Not crosses that symbolize death. Crosses that symbolize who? Jesus. Rome, the most powerful empire in the world at that time, took on Jesus. And guess who lost? Guess who lost? We are not in the hands of our circumstances. We are not in the hands of our boss that's giving us grief. We are not in the hands of that social circle that we want to break into, but they're sort of hesitant because we talk about Jesus some. 
We are not in those hands. We are not in those circumstances. We are in the hands of God. And that's the first thing that they recognize. We're in the hands of God. We can have confidence. We can be bold because we have a great God. We are great. God is great. And God is with us. We have a great God. So that's the first thing that they recognize. Moving on, uh, flip down then uh, to verse 28 in chapter 4, Acts 4, 28. It says, um, as this prayer continues, it says, uh, they, did, uh, they did what your power and will had decided before should happen. In other words, talking about what had happened with Jesus, that that was actually a plan that God had had. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, so here's the second thing. We want to be great, but we aren't great. But we have a great God. And that's what we need to cling to. We want to be big. If you want to be big, I'll give you the clue here. Pray big prayers. You want to be big, pray big prayers. Because I'll tell you, you're not big. And I'm not big. But there's an amazing power that we tap into when we pray big prayers. And I just want to say this about it. And I am more guilty than anyone in this room. So please, no fingers at you. Just something that we need to be honest about. We pray mostly small prayers, right? We pray prayers for our safety. We pray prayers so that our kids do okay in school. We pray that our finances are going to be okay. And I don't want to make fun of that because God tells us we can pray to him about anything. Those are great things to pray about. I'm just saying, that's pretty small. You know, we pray for things like traveling mercies. Do you know that we, you know, when we travel, it's like this. Nobody has ever been able to travel as safely as we travel. And we pray. I don't even know what traveling mercies means. I mean, somebody can explain. Traveling mercies. I don't even know what that expression means. But before we go on a trip, Lord, please give us traveling mercies. And the reality is, God's saying, listen, I can take care of that without my full attention. Traveling mercies is not hard. The odds, even if I disappear that you're going to be in trouble, are really remote. Why don't you roll up your sleeves and give me something to work on here, guys? Why don't you pray some big prayer where I'm really going to have to engage? You know, most of us say, you know, why doesn't God still do miracles? Why don't we see amazing things happen anymore? It just seems like those are old in, in the biblical times, or sometimes we read about them on the mission field. You know why he doesn't? Because he doesn't have to. We don't ask him to do things. We don't put ourselves in a position where unless a miracle comes through, we're done. Unless God steps in and does something that we could never do, we're gone. We don't see miracles because there's no need for God to get engaged. We don't even ask for them. But look at this prayer. This prayer is pretty bold. They say, they say, listen, God, we want you to do signs and wonders. We want to do more healings like this. Not because it makes us center stage. But, and we could never do it in our own strength. But we know that if you do these things, the message is going to get out. Do something that just requires your involvement, God. You notice they don't pray curses to fall down on the Sanhedrin. It's so interesting because I would. I'd say, God, please, Lord, just take them out. You know, just have them all get leprosy or something like that. You know, your leprosy is a good Old Testament disease. Just give them leprosy or something. 
And you notice, too, they don't pray for their own safety. Lord, put a hedge of protection around us. They don't do that. And again, no problem with those prayers. But what do they pray for one thing, and that is give us more boldness. Somebody would say, well, boldness got you into this trouble. No, no, give us more. Give us more. Make us just insanely bold. It's a great prayer, a huge prayer. Do you pray big prayers? Do you pray prayers for others? Do you pray prayers where if God doesn't do something, there's absolutely no chance it will never happen? It's going to require something supernatural, something miraculous. Do we have no miraculous stories because God can't do it? Or are we not looking for him? We're not asking for him. All right. So then we have that it's not that we're great, but that who is great? God. Okay. Let's just so that I know that we're all tracking because I can give this message again. (laughs) Like, okay. So we're not great because we're great, but who is great? And we're not big because we're big. It's because we pray big prayers. And finally, it gives us a boldness. It puts us in the place where the Holy Spirit is working through us, and we are bold. And you'll see that the the way Acts 4 ends is it says, And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke of the word of God boldly. And so you have just sort of this amazing thing. See, the Holy Spirit's moving out there with a baby. It's an amazing thing. Uh, you have, you know, really sort of this amazing thing. It's almost like God is looking in on the prayer and he knows what's happened here. And he just says, you guys got it right. And he shakes the place. I mean, that doesn't happen very much in the Bible. It's rare that God comes in and shakes a place. But he shakes the place. And there's this sense, God is with us. And this prayer honored God. And he's standing with us right now. And it says, and they move out and they're bold. And so this story where the disciples immediately go into the temple and start preaching. They get arrested. And uh, this rabbi has to stand up for them. And so they're released. But before they're released, and this is a very important thing to recognize. Before they're released, it says that they were flogged. Now, when I was raised, flogged, I always thought flogged was like, you know, they, they sort of got beat up a little bit. You know, I sort of have this picture of somebody, you know, taking a whip maybe and hitting him a couple times in the back or something like this. How many of you saw the passion of the Christ? All right. That is flogged. That's what flogged is. Flogged was such a severe torture that often people died from it. Literally, it was a cat of nine tails. It was a, a, basically a club with strips of leather attached to it. And into the strips of leather were uh, metal and glass and various things. And what they would do is they would drive that into somebody's skin and actually rip the skin off of them. And if you saw the Passion of the Christ, unbelievable. That's what that torture is. So when we say that they were flogged, that was not a minor thing. It's not like they had to recover for a couple of days after they got beat up. This was something that probably took them weeks to recover from. They almost died. Every time they took their shirt off for the rest of their lives, they would be reminded of the fact that that day they stood for Jesus in a bold way and they paid a price. 
And I don't want to give you any misgivings in the sense of being bold means God will always intervene and nothing bad will ever happen to you. Because there is a cost to being bold. There is a price to be paid. It does mean you may be rejected. It possibly could mean that you will not get that promotion. It might mean that you feel very uncomfortable or lonely at times. There are many things that can happen when we're bold. And God never promises that we will not suffer from being bold. But I want to read the last thing that it says about these guys. And if, again, if you're over in 5, it says in 541, the apostles left the Sanhedrin after they had been beaten, rejoicing that they had been found counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They got beaten and it only gave them more resolve. They actually considered it an honor, a privilege. Imagine that. You come home after work one day and say, honey, I've got great news. I just got fired today for standing for Jesus. Let's go out and celebrate. (laughs) Mom, I was trying to get into this group in the school, and they found out that I was a Christian, and they said, get lost. I am so excited. But, you know, it's that sense of saying, listen, you're, you're on God's side. He is great. We're praying big prayers, and it allows us to be bold, and there's a price to be paid for being bold at times. But I'll also tell you this. That within weeks of that first message that Peter gave, we learn that 3,000 men become Christians on the first day that he preaches. We learn just in uh, chapter 5, 5,000 more men. It says twice in the first five chapters that people constantly were coming in. It is likely but by the time that this happened that about a quarter of Jerusalem had become Christ followers. Is that amazing? A totally hostile environment who had together yelled, crucify him about Jesus. Amazing. And I'm just asking, would that have happened without boldness? Would that have happened in Jerusalem? And it won't happen here. It won't happen in Huntington Beach. It won't happen in Fountain Valley or the areas that are around. God counts on us to be bold. He counts on us to lean in even when everything's screaming, get out. He does. Because that's how his church grows. His church grows as we use the boldness that Jesus had. His spirit empowers us. And I just want to ask you the question, You know, I don't know how many. There's 200 or so of you in here. Imagine what happens if 200 of us this week are living with this kind of bold faith. That when we get into a situation, rather than thinking of how we can conceal Jesus or not get into an awkward position and kind of take a stand but nobody knows too much, if we just say, no, I worship a great God who's in control of this situation. I'm going to pray big prayers. And I'm standing up for Jesus, even if it costs something. I'm standing up. I'm going to invite this person to come. I'm going to tell this person, I disagree and I will not go along with this plan. I'm going to be okay with not being invited to the party. I'm going to be okay with that. And in fact, I'm going to turn it around and invite them to come to church. Maybe I can't come to your party, but you can come to mine. 
That is how God works through the church. That's what makes us a movement and not an institution. This is not meant to be a polite gathering where we just come and we feel good and for a week, you know, the guilt is sort of done away with. This is when we rally and we say, listen, our work is not done in here. Our work is done out there. That's where we really follow Jesus. Easy to be a Christian in here. Out there. We need to be bold. So here's what I want to do. Tim's going to come back up, and we're going to do worship in a second. But as he does this, here's what I'd like to do. Some of you, and this is going to take some boldness from some of you right now. Right now we're going to practice this. Some of you are in a situation where you know you need to be bold. This week, you need to be bold. There's some relationship that you're in, and you've been sort of maybe holding back a little bit. And this message has convicted you, God's convicted you, and you're like, I've got to be bold. You know, maybe there's a situation at school, I've got to be bold. There's a situation in my family, and you know what, I've not been straightforward, and I need to be bold this time. Not rash, not rash, but I need to be bold. And so here's what I want you to do. If you're in a place like that this week, there's some kind of bold move you feel like God's calling you to take. You can think of it right now. I'd like you to just stand up. I'm not going to ask you to talk or anything. We're actually just going to pray for you. But I'd like you to stand up so that we can pray for you this week as that's going to happen. So go ahead and just stand up. Great. Stand up. And if you've got something that's sort of, this is a week where I'm going to do something different than I would have done otherwise. All right. Very good. That's excellent. I know it takes a little bit of courage even in here. This is a good start. This is a good start. You know, I do. I play basketball with guys on Sunday or Saturday morning. And for a long time, I could just stand as you go, because I'll tell you this story, and then you'll all stand up, because you'll go, Kevin's a total wimp. You know what? But anyway, you know, I'm out there, and I hate telling them that I'm a pastor, because as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor, everybody gets weird around me. They apologize when they cuss around me. That is so awkward. It's like, do you think I've not heard those words? Do you think I've not said those words? And, uh, and so I was just meditating on this thing all week this week. And I just said, you know what? I can't be ashamed of being a pastor because it's not my position as a pastor. It just clearly tells them I follow Jesus. And so yesterday, I was like telling them all I was pastor. And uh, fortunately, they weren't like shocked. You're a pastor? <laughs> the way you act? Uh. No, I mean, they were like, okay, well, anyway. So, you know, that's for me. I mean, I'm standing because I'm standing. I need boldness this week. So if you're someone, last chance, if you want to stand, we're just going to pray for you right now. And, uh, and then Tim's going to lead us in, in some worship response. And uh, just incidentally, when we respond in worship, that's not like the optional part of the service. That's like the payoff. You guys just put up with me for 40 minutes. The payoff is coming, okay? So let's stay and, and worship a little bit. But let me pray. And here's what I'd like you to do. If you're sitting down, uh, we have a, a practice here at Mariners that just sort of gives solidarity when we pray for someone. I'd like you to put out a hand toward somebody who's sitting next to you. It's called a hand of blessing. If there's nothing magic. There's nothing that's coming out of your hand and hitting them. It's just a way for us to stand together. So if all of you that are sitting will put a hand out towards somebody that's standing right now, uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the people that are standing. Because you've put them in a situation where you have to act. Where, Jesus, you've got to do something for them to be bold. It's not enough for them to muster the courage. And we are not great because we're great. We're great because you're great. 
We're not big because we're big. We're big because we make big prayers and you intervene. We're bold because of your strength. And I pray for the various situations around this room where this week we want to be bold. I want to be bold. Help us to stand for you, Jesus. Help us not to be rash. Help us to be bold and use wisdom. And Lord, we are counting on you to come through as we do this. Bless these people. Give them your very best as they stand for you. Help us to be a bold, bold church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.